this afternoon onward, onward with our journey together. And we're on to the next chariot. <laughs> Just as Gil was sharing with us yesterday, this, this chariot of the purification of a view and coming to rest in that and rest in this process. And I appreciated the language he used around this process of purification, this a kind of shedding that happens. And this afternoon, I, I want to share with you some reflections on how oh, one way this purification of mind is, is thought of, and namely, it's this cultivation of samadhi. And hopefully you'll hear with what I'm sharing with you, there are these elements of this similar kind of shedding of purification that happens around cultivating samadhi. And it, again, is, is following this primary teaching, which Gil mentioned yesterday, of, of just really seeing these seven stages of purification as, a, as a, a fancier unfolding of sila, samadhi, and panya. So I'd like to begin just by sharing with you just a way of understanding this word samadhi. And Again, I think it's another wonderful world word not to translate because the, the, the word that's usually used to translate samadhi, I think, can be misleading, this, this word concentration. And so I want to come at it at a, another angle. Samadhi comes from this verb uh, samadhati, which means to put together or to collect. So a mind filled or a heart filled with samadhi is a mind that's collected. And the image that I uh, use to help explain this is, is the image of all of us in this room. For example, listening to me speak. And you could say all of us, maybe all of us, don't want to assume anything, all of us are listening to me right now. The attention is now collected around the sound of my voice coming and going. It's like all of you came from different places and now we're collected together around this one activity, this one experience of the sound of my voice coming and going. And you could say in that, in that kind of description, there would be a lot of samadhi here. Another situation might be that most of you are in this room listening to the sound of my voice coming and going, but maybe there's four or five of you in the corner having your own conversation. And you could say that this room still has quite a bit of samadhi, but not a, not, it's not completely collected because there's, there's a group of you, four or five of you, having your own conversation in the back there. So it's like the room is split then a little bit. You could say, well, there's still quite a bit of samadhi, but it's not like fully unified and fully collected. And then there might be another situation where a good number of you are hearing the sound of my voice coming and going, but then there's a conversation over there in that, that corner, and then maybe another five or six of you in that corner, and three or four in the other corner having a conversation. And in terms of my assessment and how my mind works, I would say, that's still pretty good. <laughs> the mind's still kind of collected, but there's still aspects of the room or, or the analogy of the mind that, that are doing their own thing. It's not completely collected. It's not completely unified around this experience. And samadhi really is this whole spectrum of that, where the heart and mind is completely con 
uh, collected, completely absorbed and unified around an experience, whether it be a sound or the feeling of the breath. It can even be collected around the arising and passing of an emotion or a thought. Or there can be most of your mind collected or unified around that, and then the other parts still kind of scattered in some kind of way. And when you reflect on maybe just the quality of your mind or the changes in the quality of your mind already on retreat, you can notice how at times there's been a little bit more samadhi, where the room of your mind has been pretty unified around an experience, and other times where it's just been like chaos. Everybody in your mind is having their own conversation. and you're doing your best to navigate. I want to distinguish this from this quality of mindfulness and to point out that these are really um, intertwined together. And I, I want to say I'm, I'm oversimplifying the difference, but I, I want to do that to help clarify. Again, you could say the quality of mind or the activity of mind that allows your eyes to see this bell that I'm holding up and to keep your attention there, to allow the mind to collect in that sense around that, is that that activity of samadhi. It's aiming the attention and sustaining the attention around the bell. That's samadhi. Whereas mindfulness could see that the bell is moving right now, that the bell has a certain color to it and shape to it. It notices these details in terms of that. And these qualities work together and both are really important. But they're, but they're different, intertwined but different. And, and here we're, we're attempting to cultivate both of these, both of these qualities. And, and much of the instruction that we've given, especially around the details, right? The details just on the rise and fall is really cultivating, sharpening the mindfulness aspect. And the noting can help sharpen that. It, it, it's the, it, it can be a clarifying activity. Sometimes it doesn't work for everyone. But these are these two qualities. And samadhi is important, I think most of you know, because, because once the mind can collect and unify around a, a, an experience, it can start to see it clearly. If it's scattered, it's never going to be able to see the bell clearly and see the nature of, of, of that experience of seeing the bell. So a really important element, this samadhi aspect. And as you probably noticed, not a goal in itself, just that, that the mind's ability to unify, it can be very healing, and there is a quality of letting go and shedding, but it's, it's not, not going to bring the, the clarity of vision that's needed for the heart's release. And what I'd like to do with, uh, uh, share with you is a little bit of the Buddha's journey around discovering somebody, because I think it informs um, maybe our own discoveries along this path, our own discoveries of the nature of this chariot that we want to give ourselves over to. You can say, once upon a time, the Buddha was involved in all kinds of austerity practices, 
And uh, this is from the middle-length discourses. He, he describes uh, some of what he was exploring. He said, uh, he said, at one time I thought, suppose I were to take only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup or lentil soup, veg soup or pea soup. So I took only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, veg soup or pea soup. And my body became extremely emaciated. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old run-down barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets like the gleam of water deep in a well. Simply from my eating so little. And some of you maybe have seen this, the, 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 you know, there's this, this statue or this archetypal image of, of the Buddha being completely emaciated where you can see the ribs jutting out. It's really a, a quite a striking image. And probably for most of us here, again, I don't want to make assumptions, can't relate to doing such a practice of emaciating ourselves so extremely and around food. But I want to point out that many of us here probably have been engaged, maybe still are engaged, in a kind of modern austerity practice that I find my mind slip into all too easily. And it's, it's this austerity practice of being so hard and judgmental of ourselves. It, it's amazing how critical we can be of ourselves. And when I, when I really reflect on the damage that it's done in my life, it's like doing that austerity practice. It starves me. It robs me of the nourishment that my heart needs. And yet, it's amazing how skillful this mind has become at times to this. Sometimes I think it's perfected this austerity practice. Maybe you can relate to this modern austerity practice that your mind and heart maybe they're quite good at. And sometimes, hopefully not as much on this retreat, but sometimes with this, with this Mahasi approach, sometimes it can lend itself to the mind slipping into this austerity practice. Right, because it's an encouragement to see these details or to practice in a certain way and it might not fit completely so we can feel like we're doing it wrong or something's wrong with us and we can get hard on ourselves and critical of ourselves. And there, we're just doing the austerity practice again, which we'll come to see the Buddha realized didn't work so well for himself. <laughs> but most importantly, I invite you to to see if you can become aware of this, this practice, and to step out of it. And then there's a turn. There's a turn in his practice that he describes. In the same discourse, he says, and then I, I recalled, I recalled once when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then, quite secluded from sensuality, quite secluded from unskillful mental qualities, 
I entered and remained, you could say, in a state of samadhi. And then upon that memory, he asked himself this question, could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization, this is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? And then I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. And this was the turning in his practice. This was this turning and, and then and then this is where he started to take up eating again because of that memory and realizing, oh, this is the kind of pleasure, samadhi, that leads to awakening. What would it be like to shed that modern austerity practice? To actually allow nourishment into your practice? to open up to the skillful pleasure of the mind collecting so that samadhi can take hold. So this is the first thing that, that I want to point out about the practice of samadhi is so much of it can be about my relationship with myself. I know that one of the things that has made this practice so difficult, and of course this is one of the, the core qualities of suffering the Buddha talks about, it is, is needing always to get something done or to get somewhere or to become somebody. And a lot of times it's built upon this modern austerity because I need to be somebody better than I, who I am right now and I can be chasing after this in a way. And it really is, has a quality of starvation to it, not of nourishment. And I notice when my system is in that place, it can't settle. And if it can't settle, it's not going to collect around any kind of experience. And I want to point out for many of us here, I don't know about for all of us, but, but many of us here, I, I want to acknowledge that we're, we find ourselves thrown into a dominant culture or a dominant society that kind of feeds upon this, that starves us in this sense. But, uh, it makes us into goods consumers and capitalists that way. <laughs> but, but, but allowing the system to step out of that does allow it to settle. I was just, um, last month I got to, let's see, what month are we in? January? So last month I got to see one of my sisters. She now lives in Costa Rica and she came up to the States to, to visit. And um, she hates the States. <laughs> and the reasons, one of the reasons is, it drives her system crazy because everything goes so quickly. Like, you know, w w where she lives down in Costa Rica, things go so slowly. She goes to the bank to get something done. She might be there for a few hours. It's so okay for her because her system, she says, works at a different rhythm. It's more settled. There's a quality of, of being okay with the way things are. She's, she actually says that she feels safer driving in Costa Rica than in the States. And one of the reasons is she had a, a pretty rundown car in the States and she was always afraid of it breaking down and then being stranded. And she says in Costa Rica, everybody's car breaks down. <laughs> and so like when your car breaks down, people just stop by to help you out. 
And so she has no problem driving, trying to get to San Jose a long drive from, from where she is and her car breaking down because she knows there's always community around her. And it allows the system to settle. So what we're trying to do here is to have this different relationship with ourselves, a softening and an opening. And this is why I think it's so important, as I was mentioning in my, my first talk, and uh, I feel uh, Gil was mentioning this too, of, of how he was talking about the importance of, a, of savoring or, or appreciating our, our ethical integrity, is um, uh, leading with the heart once again. And that's why, again, this altruistic intention, when I begin a sit or my day with this, it softens the heart in some manner. Or some of you might want to take just a little bit of time in the morning or in the mid-morning for uh, practicing a little bit of loving kindness or compassion. Remember, even Saida Upandita always seems to be so strict. He, he, he allowed five minutes for this, which I thought was huge for, for him. Very generous too practice these four recollections. One of them was the practice of loving kindness. And then the reflection also, I think the other one that's coming to mind is the, the qualities of the Buddha, which, you know, given how we're culturally situated, can really uplift the heart in some kind of manner. So what, what, what opens and softens the heart? Just, just a little bit to allow, the, allow you to be here a little bit differently. Maybe one other story about this. This happened last year. I was speaking with a a fellow meditator, she, she'd been coming to my retreats for a long time and just had this natural kind of propensity towards samadhi. And um, so I asked her, especially on long retreat, how, how, how she goes about collecting her mind. And what she said, I thought, thought was really striking. She says, oh, for the first few days, I just do loving kindness practice. I just, I just hang out and love myself. And she says the, the reason she felt like samadhi had come so easily to her at this stage of her life, and she's been practicing for 30 years, is because there's so much love of herself. And she says, with that love of herself, it's just like, ah, the, 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 the heart and mind just kind of settle with experience. So I, so I want to point out, in some ways, that, that's the most important thing I have to share. There'll probably be other most important things, but that's one of them. <laughs> And once again, the importance of pleasure, to actually open skillfully to pleasure when you experience it within your meditation, your walking or sitting meditation. And yes, it's tricky because to open and to savor pleasure is so close to grasping. It really is a skill to learn what I mean by this word savor, what I mean by this, this phrase to be with. And that's something that you'll have to clarify on your own what allows for a, a settling and an opening around pleasure in that sense. Because there can be a fear of it, and that's what it's so striking to me about the Buddha's description of this turn, is asking himself, why am I so afraid of this pleasure that leads to awakening? And I imagine, again, I'm imagining a certain Buddha. I imagine that He's just like many of us, that, that what happens with our physiology is that, that, and I spoke about this a little bit previously, is that um, there's some part of us that doesn't trust 
feeling settled and completely collected. Because often our systems have, might have been trained to feel safe, to be a little bit on alert, a little bit hypervigilant, a little bit on guard, a little bit trusting more doing things rather than simply being. That there's been a training that that's where safety is. So then when there's this invitation to find a quality of safety and settledness in a different way, part of my, our systems might be, <gasps> might feel a little bit anxious around that when, when the system settles. So I want to say that it's, it's natural for actually the mind and the heart to settle a little bit on, on retreat and then to pop out of that. And that's the natural process of coming into deeper and deeper phases of settling and collecting. It's, it's the heart and mind getting used to these deeper, d deeper experiences of being settled. The image I give is it's kind of like the, the dog you get from the pound who at first is so frightened of its new owner. So it comes and it sniffs, but it's frightened, so it runs away. And then it, it gradually starts to, to get closer and closer to this new owner. It starts to realize there actually is safety, but it needs to run back and forth and gradually get used to that before it can settle into this new home, this new home of samadhi. So it's shedding, it's shedding that habitual tendency of what we, where we usually find safety and finding it around, at times, pleasure and the mind collecting. And it's, I, I do want to also acknowledge that um, there are so many phases of the practice that are not going to have any pleasure in them whatsoever. They're either going to have a feeling of being neutral or extremely unpleasant. To remember, you don't get to choose, which is a drag. <laughs> I found it to be a drag at times in my life. Maybe that's why I practice. So only, only when the pleasure is there. And then when there's something unpleasant, the mind can still collect around that, or even when it's neutral. It's just there's something, something that can be helpful about the skill around pleasure. There are many ways and approaches to cultivating samadhi. And I want to divide these up into kind of classical ways of cultivating samadhi. One is um, uh, through samatha, which, is, which, which can lead to jhana or absorption, where it's attending to, uh, for, for the purposes here, kind of a fixed, relatively stable object, like just the breath. And then as the mind collects around that, then there's other practices that kind of arise from that. And that, that can be a really important aspect of practice for folks to explore. Yet with the Mahasi approach, there was an intention to, uh, to approach the practice differently than beginning with the Samatha practice to really open up this different door. And the kind of samadhi that the, the Mahasi Sayadaw really encouraged, and of course 
his students like uh, Saida Upandita, was to cultivate uh, something called Kanika Samadhi, which is momentary concentration. And it is a term, again, I want to acknowledge that comes from the commentaries, but I find it a, it's been a really helpful term for understanding this approach to practice, and I've, I found it a really helpful um, term to, to get, gain the skill of cultivating that. And Kanika Samadhi is momentary Samadhi. So it's the kind of collecting that can happen around a changing object or many objects. So, so the, the mind collects around the feeling of the breathing, and then a sound pulls it away, and then it collects around a sound coming and going. There's a pain in the knee, and, and it collects around that experience for a while. A thought arises, there's the noticing of the thought coming and going, and it collects around this. So it's the acknowledgement there's a, there's a kind of samadhi that can, can uh, be nurtured and cultivated and deepened around changing objects or around the changing nature of one object. And this is really helpful because what, what is the gateway to insight is the sensitivity to change. And so it's really combining some of this. It's combining the stability of samadhi, but it's really allowing the mindfulness to be really strong intermixed with this. And kanika samadhi is going to accentuate change. So for example, this, this momentary samadhi is going to notice, like on the abdomen rising and falling, how tightness can increase and then that increases that increasing of the tightness stops, and then there's a decreasing on the on the fall of the of the abdomen, or the the mind being able to really notice how a sound is uh, kind of increasing and decreasing really rapidly, or coming and going very rapidly. There's a vibratory quality to it. Sometimes in the feeling of the abdomen rising and falling, the movement feels like it's happening in segments or in waves. Sometimes it feels jagged, or it sometimes feels like it's continually appearing and disappearing really quickly or disintegrating. All of these flavors of flow and impermanence, that this quality of kanika samadhi, this momentary concentration, takes in. And this is, this is the encouragement we're giving you through this practice of noting, through paying attention to the details of experience. And again, maybe to simplify this, maybe to oversimplify it, but I find it helpful. What, what allows this, the, the samadhi from samatha to take hold is to have an object, for example, the breath, to be a relatively stable one or to pay attention to it where we're seeing the continuity of it, not the change so much of it, but how it's stable. And in terms of kanika samadhi or momentary concentration, it's having a sensitivity to change. So for example, I was doing a, a concentration retreat, a samadhi retreat and um, the samadhi was building. And because I'd done so much Mahasi practice, the mind was really starting to take in uh, change around the breath at a very subtle level and in permanence. And um, 
the teacher told me there's a student of Pauk Saida. There's a one of the teachers was Saida Ujagara, who's a student of Pauk Saida. Basically, I'm saying, see if you can disregard any sensitivity to change. <laughs> Just see if you can get the the feeling of the continuity of the breath, so it can stabilize the the mind in this particular direction. So we're trying to do the opposite of that, of just being open, sensitive to change. And also what comes with uh, what I call kanika samadhi, or this momentary samadhi, momentary concentration. Uh, and, and, and I want to point out, I'm, I'm just using poetic language here. Probably always I'm using poetic metaphorical language. But especially here is is this it feels like it allows me to get closer, more intimate with experience. It, it allows me to shed the bigger concepts that separate me from experience. So let me give some examples of this. So one example is I might be sitting here feeling the abdomen rising and falling. The mind gets pulled away by a sound and, and the, the, the mind says, oh, car. And then it just comes back to, to the, um, to the abdomen rising and falling. And you could say, eh, kind of samadhi, but not a lot. But with this momentary concentration, it's picking up the fabric, the details of that experience. So what happens is the mind gets pulled away by the, by a sound, and there's a recognition that hearing is happening, and how that sound comes and goes. It's not just the concept car, but it's a sound that it appears, and then it's noticing that it disappeared. So it's noticing the flow of that sound that just happened. And it's noticing that the word car might appear in the mind. Or there's a small image of a car running ba uh, by in the mind. So an image or a word pops through as thought and then disappears. And then there's a coming back to the, the feeling of the breathing. Do you hear how within that, there's more of the sense of all of these things that create the experience of, quote, I'm hearing a car. But there's, but there's a, a sense of these details that, m that form that concept of I'm hearing a car. It's coming together of sound, of images, of this subtle thought, of, this, of the sound coming and going. And when I can touch some of that, there's a, there's a more intimacy, a little bit more uh, closer to the experience. So you might want to play with that around experience, just this, this scene, if you can, closer just to the fabric, what I call the fabric, the different parts of what make up a moment of experience or a few moments of experience. I remember, uh, again, I, I went in for an interview with Saida Upandita and uh, I was offering him my report. And of course, the, the report is just made up. You're s supposed to kind of report kind of your quote unquote, a little bit better sitting meditation and walking meditation. And, uh, and uh, just a caveat to this, I want to point out, we're not, <laughs> we're not at all trying to expect all of you to do this or any of you to do this. There's something wonderful about reporting this way and something that can be incredibly confining and it often just doesn't work for people. So there's nothing special about 
this so much, but it's just some of these examples might be helpful to get a sense of this, this approach to practice. And I, uh, it was some report on I, what I recall is vibrations in my hand. And, uh, you know, it was something like, okay, so vibrations in the hand occurred, and then I noticed, uh, noticed it as, as vibration, and then I noticed that there was these vibrations in the underneath part of my hand and then above my hand. And this is what I was observing. And he said something like, hand? <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> of course, I was completely embarrassed and felt horrible. But what he was pointing out was that what I was actually noting was ju noticing was just vibration. And then there was the concept around those vi vibrations of putting it around this idea of hand. But when I was experiencing those vibrations, it wasn't like there was a hand. There might have been the image of a hand arising. But, but the, 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 the concept hand was just the conceptual formation around the vibrations. So to notice that, sometimes you'll notice your, your mind is, is using these, these, con these concepts are popping up in the midst of these sensations, which is really interesting to, to see. And maybe we'll go over this a, a little bit tomorrow morning. One way of dividing up um, the thinking process that's been helpful, really helpful to me to kind of refine this, I, uh, I'm really grateful to the teacher Shinzen Young for this, is uh, sometimes seeing thought not so much as planning, remembering, fantasizing, but in terms of image, internal images or internal talk. I think he uses different words now, internal hearing or internal seeing. Because what you might notice about the thinking process is that those are the two major components of it, is there's an image that pops up, or there's a few words or sentences that pop up. And it can be so fascinating, especially when the mind's a little bit more collected, to notice some of these aspects of thinking. And it's so it, a, a easy place to, to catch this is around sound. Like if you, even if you're sitting here with your eyes closed or, or you hear the sound of a car pass by, sometimes that image of the car pops through the head. Or if your eyes are closed now, it might be the image of me talking that's kind of vague and, and percolating through the mind. It's happening so quickly. And it's a way of, of, of sometimes getting closer to the, the flow, the, un, uh, the, the impermanent flowing quality of experience. So getting closer, more intimate to experience through this kanika samadhi, through this momentary concentration. And as I mentioned, this talk isn't only about samadhi, it's about the cultivation of samadhi. And this word cultivation is really, really important. Maybe the most important thing that I'm going to say today <laughs> about samadhi. The, the Pali word is bhavana. Samadhi bhavana, or some of you who've done Goenka retreats, remember that Goenka in his kind of deep, booming voice, metta bhavana, where he's talking about the cultivation of, of loving kindness. And uh, it, one way that this word can be translated as is cultivation and and again, I appreciate the uh, A Glenn Wallace, who, um, among other things, has spent some time translating Pali, and, and he, he uh, shares 
his imagination of what the Buddha was imagining when the Buddha was using this word. And he, he basically says, you know, I imagine the Buddha uh, bringing to mind as he uses this word bhavana for something like cultivating samadhi is, is remembering him, him being surrounded by this agrarian culture. You know, this culture that's surrounded by the earthiness and messiness of growing food. That's cultivation, gardening, farming. And any of you who know, who have a garden and know that process, know how messy it is and how out of control it is. And I find this really important for the, the cultivation of samadhi. You plant the seed, you get the right soil, you water it, it starts to grow. And then if you live in Flagstaff, that huge summertime hailstorm comes and puts those big holes in your squash plants. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I put so much work into this. <laughs> and then boom, the, the plant is mostly destroyed. And I, I come, I always bring to mind maybe I do, the images of our poor squash, squash plants to remind me that in samadhi, the cultivation of samadhi, there's so much that I'm not in control of. I influence the mind to collect, but I can't control it. And so much of what happens in gardening is, is storms come that you can't predict, all kinds of different bugs, those tomato beetles, the potato beetles, there they are. It's not like you did anything wrong. It's just the nature of gardening. It's just the process of it. You can influence the cultivation of samadhi, but you can't control it. And just as with gardening, you know, when the storm comes, it would be silly to take it personally, don't you think? Wouldn't it be a silly idea if I were to say, here's this ha hailstorm, and since this hailstorm is happening, there must be something wrong with me, or I'm a horrible person, or I suck at this? This is crazy. <laughs> why would you think that? And in the same way, why would you have those thoughts when samadhi disappears for a day or two? Maybe it's a two-week storm. That's just the way it is sometimes. <laughs> That's what it is to cultivate. It's messy. It has that earthy, messy quality to it. This is, this is the realm of samadhi. This is the real realm of samadhi. We're here to cultivate, not, not to control. This world of influence rather than control. And this analogy of, or this image of the Buddha being surrounded by these fields of his fellow villagers cultivating the fields and growing brings 
me to this next part of, of cultivating samadhi, which is this navigating of challenges. That this is part and parcel of the cultivation of samadhi. And this is, as you probably, most of you know, so much of what's talked about in the cultivation of samadhi is, is navigating the hindrances, that which hindrance hinders the mind from collecting and is part of this purification of the mind, this, this stage of purification, this particular chariot. And the cool thing about this chariot is that it means that if you've been experiencing one or more of these hindrances, you're in the chariot. <laughs> Isn't that nice? You can rest back already in the second chariot. Things are going well. <laughs> Very nice. So if the mind, if, if challenges around sense desire or grasping in a more general way has arisen, or ill will, or to generalize it, aversion has arisen, or sloth and torpor, sleepiness, grogginess, or restless, restlessness and worry, or doubt, you're on the path. So hopefully you can leave here thinking, phew, I was worried, maybe things weren't going well. But here we are in the, the second chariot together. This is a big part of the cultivation of samadhi is, is the muck of the hindrances. How to navigate them. And I just, I wanna share just, I'm not gonna go over each and every one in detail or talk about this too much in detail, but just to give some broad brushstrokes. And probably a lot of this for many of you is just reminders of important relationships to have towards the difficulties that arise when we're on this journey together. And again, I find it so important to have this quality with leading with the heart when I come across the innumerable challenges that happen on retreat, that, that happen on this pathway to cultivating samadhi. In a poem that I feel expresses some of this, this important turn in relationship to challenges is a, is a poem by Pesha Gertler. And it's entitled, The Healing Time. And she begins, she says, finally, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. And where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart. And I say, holy, holy. Finally, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, 
my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. Can you remember that's what's getting in your way on your retreat here is actually sacred. There's a sacredness in there that is calling on you to find in some way. And when you reflect on your life right now, you might be able to think back on some of those old scars that really have turned out to be quite sacred. Like when I reflect back on, you know, my own struggles with just that, the, the deep self-hatred that used to really plague me. When I look back on that and my struggles with that, I don't think if I never struggled with that, I don't think I ever really would have understood really what loving myself was about. I would have never understood the real taste of unconditional love. That was the gift that was given to me through that. And in some ways, there was a sacredness in those struggles. Of course, I, I don't wish that upon anyone. And yet at the same time, in some strange way, I'm grateful and I see a sacredness there. What's getting in your way on this retreat is going your way. It just needs your kind attention. So ways not to approach the hindrances. This is something that used to happen to me in Nepal with Saida Uvivakananda. I, I hear he's changed his ways. I think he's softer now. But I would come into him and report the hindrances, you know, that certain hindrances would be arising. And often he would say, dispel them at once. Get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, m my personality, that did not work so well. <laughs> it might work for you. But I really needed to, to soften, and I needed to soften in, in particular ways. Yes, it, there's these things of, of naming, naming what's there. Oh, doubt is here. This is what it really is. All those thoughts, that's just doubt. Oh, that's pain. That's, that's, that's this hurt that comes that's underneath this anger. Oh, that's what that is. To name it, to feel it, to see if I can become curious, more curious about the experience than, than sometimes what I call the object of it. So I might be in the mind, the mind's lost at being angry at someone or afraid of something. What does the fear itself feel like? What does the anger itself feel like? curious about that rather than the, the hook of the object. So softening by simply seeing and naming 
slowing down with. And then for the tough times when it feels like, what I'm going to call, it feels like mindfulness is overwhelmed. I don't know if you've had those experiences where you label something, you try to feel it in the body, and it's just too much for the mind. It's like mindfulness is overwhelmed. The, the story is too strong. The struggle is too much, and it just feels like I mean, it's just, just enough just to stay on the cushion, let alone feel anything about the breathing. <laughs> and it's in those times where I need to remember this most important thing, probably the most important thing I'm going to share with you. <laughs> <laughs> which is self-compassion. It's amazing if I can just remember to, to just this one word for myself. And the one word for me is ouch. Because when I say, I can say ouch to myself, then what's implied in that is like, man, this is just tough. This is tough right now. And wow, I'm having a hard time. And then there, there can be this immediate softening the ouch. Oh, I'm having a hard time. And I actually care about it. I care about my suffering. May I be free from suffering. Just need to get that one word out. And why it's so powerful is because then I stop trying to figure it out, try to manipulate it or manage this, trying to figure out the right technique of the 10,000 techniques that I've learned on this path. And all it does is allows me to soften and to care. And when there's that, then immediately there can be a touching and intimacy of the experience right there. Because for me, if I try to be mindful of it, I'm usually not touching it. I need to soften. I need to allow the heart to lead. Oh, may these reflections allow us to ride on this chariot of samadhi together on this retreat in a way that, that leads to the liberation of, of all beings. Thank you. Just sit for a, a moment. <coughs> 